Hebrews chapter 9. You guys there? Say amen if you're there. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15. We'll start by uh, reading verses 1. Let's go 1 through 7. Let's get into God's Word. Verse 1, chapter 9. Then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick, or the lampstand, and the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, or we might call it the holy place. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had a golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest only once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself, and for the heirs of the people. Father, we, uh, we ask You, we plead with You to open our hearts to understand the whole purpose of the tabernacle, the whole purpose of the instruments, the items inside, to understand fully the purpose of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Holy Spirit, speak. Fill this place, and Lord, give us ears to hear. Transform our hearts, change us on the inside, and bring us to a closer walk with you as we start out this new year. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I entitled this message, A Superior Sanctuary. Today we're going to look at, we're going to take a tour of the sanctuary, of the tabernacle that God told Moses to build and would later be built by Solomon, a temple. Nothing stands there today, but be, there'll be another one built during the tribulation. There was a purpose for the tabernacle. There was a purpose for the temple. But today what we're going to look at is that there is a greater sanctuary, a greater temple, a temple not made with hands in heaven. A superior temple and all through these chapters that we've been going one through nine now we've been looking at the writer of hebrews who i believe is paul is telling us the superiority of jesus christ to everything to those that worship angels he says that jesus is superior to the angels and that all angels must worship jesus christ to those who favor the prophets, the writer says Jesus Christ is superior to all the prophets and is the creator of all things. He shows us that Jesus Christ is superior to the Levitical priesthood, the ironic priesthood that was developed when the law became in effect because Jesus is of a higher order, the order of Melchizedek, a priesthood forever 
and the Levitical priesthood was temporary. He showed us last week that we are under a new covenant, a better covenant, a more superior covenant, because now we are not under the law because Jesus fulfilled the law. And in the old covenant, you had to obey. It was conditional. God put a condition on His people. If you do this, if you do that, you will do well. And so the old covenant was based on if you obey, you live. The new Testament covenant is based on we live to obey. We're under grace. It makes it a better covenant. Jesus said to his disciples at the Last Supper, the scriptures say, then he took the cup, he gave thanks, and he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. Everything in the old covenant that was being done was to be a shadow or a type or a model of a better thing to come. So when the Lord gave Moses the instructions for the tabernacle, the tabernacle that Moses built, the temple that Solomon built, was only a type of a heavenly temple not made with hands. It was an earthly temple made by men. It was temporary. It was nothing to be compared to the temple in heaven that we will see one day as we stand in the presence of God. And so what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say is he's saying, listen, why would you want to go back to an inferior tabernacle? Why would you want to go back to something earthly built by man when you have at your exposed being to one day come to heaven and to embrace a heavenly temple, a heavenly tabernacle not made with hands greater than the earthly temple? And so that's what he's been saying all along. Why would you want to go back to a covenant, the old covenant, that you couldn't keep? Why would you want to go back to an earthly temple when there's a heavenly temple awaiting you? And when you give your life to Jesus Christ, you've already become part of that. You are part of the new covenant. You've accepted, the new, you've accepted what Jesus has done on the cross for your sins. You're born again, and you now have eternal life. And we will stand before that throne one day and praise Him for all that He's done. And so today what we want to do is we want to take a little tour of the tabernacle in verses 1-5 through five that we just read. Um, he says there that of these things we cannot now... Now, we can't now speak in detail. So what I want to do is I want to speak in detail a little bit so you have an understanding of what we're looking at and why under the new covenant we have a better covenant and why we have a better temple in heaven than the tabernacle that was built with earthly hands. And so as we look at verses 1 through 5, what we see there is that God 
was providing a way for his people to meet with him. Very important to understand that. Moses was to build a sanctuary that had a courtyard about 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. So that's a little bigger than this building. Okay? And then there was going to be the tabernacle inside of the courtyard. And the tabernacle would be 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high. A flat top. It was called a tabernacle or a tent. But it was a flat top. So picture 45 feet by 15 by 15 feet high. When Moses got these instructions, he must have kind of scratched his head thinking, listen, um, you're giving me a courtyard and a tabernacle so the people can meet with you, but the courtyard's only 150 feet by 75 feet. We got about 3 million people. This is never going to happen. How are we going to get every... Moses must, must have thought that. It was God saying to Moses, in a sense, of his desire to meet with the people. But I think it's God maybe saying, not all my people are going to have a desire to meet with me. And maybe that's why the courtyard was so small. And doesn't that ring true today? How many people you know are Christians, but they don't go to church? They don't do Bible study. They don't share the gospel. They're great people. You love them. They're nice. But there's just no desire to spend time with the Lord. They're, they're not reading their Bible. They're not talking to God every day. And God has such a desire to meet with every one of you. Every one of you is special in the eyes of God. And He wants to spend time with you and He wants to speak to you through His Word by the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants to have interaction with, with you in a prayer life where you ask for things and you ask for desires, but you stop and you listen for a response. God wants to spend time with you. And how much time do you desire to spend with Jesus? That's the real question. And when you spend time with Jesus, do you enjoy it? Or do you feel it as more of an obligation? Maybe you got dragged here today because mom said you were going. And you're like, oh, great, how long is this going to take? I know who you are because you're the ones that's always going. <laughs> Checking the watch, up and down. But you know what? Praise God you're here. Because you know what? I would rather have you here and not happy. <laughs> than not here at all. Because today could be the day that the Word of God gets a hold of your life and changes you forever. We have access to God that the Old Testament saints did not have. And you need to understand that. So let's take a detailed look of the tabernacle today. And as we enter into this courtyard, one of the things that we're going to see is first the altar for the sacrifices. Now, you've got this courtyard 150 feet by 75 feet wide. There's one door. There's only one door to get in. And then you're going to see 
an altar where they'd offer up the sacrifices, the animals, the burnt offerings, the meal offerings, all those things. And then next to it was a laver. It was like a, a small pool where the priest would wash. And after he'd do service, he'd wash again and get clean clothes and, and clean linen. And then you would see the tabernacle. And the tabernacle followed after the labor. And in the tabernacle, there was only one entrance, one door, one way in. And Jesus Christ in John 10.7 said, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So there's one door. There's one way to be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by him. So we see this altar for sacrificing. We see the, the laver for washing. The laver representing the water, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the cleansing. Ephesians 5.26 says that He, speaking of Jesus Christ, might sanctify and cleanse her, His bride, with the washing of the water by the Word. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness as we enter into the tabernacle there's one door there's one way in and what we see on the right hand side is what they call the table of showbread the table of showbread was a place where they laid 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel Jesus said in John 6:48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Hallelujah. Won't you take that bread today if you don't know Jesus? Won't you accept Jesus today? He's offering you a gift. You're saved by faith, not by your works. You can't pay for it. You can't earn it. You just got to accept it. Just bring yourself to the Lord and say, I've sinned against you. Save me. It's that easy. And have eternal life. And eternal life is, is way better than eternal damnation of pain and torture. We're eternal beings. You will live forever. You won't, your body won't. This body will be changed if you're a child of God. But if you're not a child of God, you'll be cast into hell, burning throughout eternity, tormented day and night. It's a real deal. And you can say, well, I don't believe in that. It ain't going to change anything. Wouldn't it be easier just to say, you know what? I will take door number one and go to heaven. <laughs> and just avoid all that. I was going to say something, but I'm not. On the left side of the tabernacle, we see the lampstand. In the King James, the candlestick, it's more of a lampstand. It's not like candles. It's uh, like the menorah. And there's, they would put oil in the, in the bowls. There were seven of them. And, and that lampstand was to stay lit constantly. So the priests were always 
working with that lampstand where the table of showbread, they would change out the bread every seven days. And the lampstand had to be constantly filled and trimmed the wicks and everything. And the lampstand was important because God didn't want the light to go out or the light of the world. And that lampstand represents a lot of things. There, were, there was one main lamp in the center, and then there were six on each side. So there were seven stands. The six, the three on each side, represents man. The one in the middle is the number of completion. Seventh, which represents God. The lampstand also represents the seven spirits of God, the completeness of the Holy Spirit. It also, if you're reading the book of Revelation, you will find that he refers to the seven churches as the lampstand with Jesus in the midst. John 8, 12 says, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Do you have that life today? And then in front of the veil, we'll see the altar of incense. This was an a, a altar made out of gold in front of the veil. When we read it just a little bit ago in the Scriptures, what we saw was that that altar was inside the Holy of Holies. Once a year, it would be moved inside. But the rest of the year, it was outside, just in front of the veil. And what the priest would do is he would take coals off the altar where they made the sacrifices, and then they would put them in a golden bowl that had chains on it, and they would go in and they would swing it. And they would walk through the holy place, and, and they would get the incense going, and then once a year on the Day of Atonement, they would bring those incense into the presence of the Holy of Holies, the presence of God before the Ark of the Covenant. Now, inside the Holy of Holies, we see the Holy of Holies is 15 by 15 by 15. It's in a cube. And if you love the Word of God, that should catch your catch your eye because the new Jerusalem is in the shape of a cube. And inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Now the Ark of the Covenant was a pretty good sized box of acacia wood, which would be comparable to our koa wood, and it was covered with gold, within, without. And on top of it was a mercy seat, gold, and then the two cherubim that were gold, overlooking the mercy seat. And it was a picture of the throne of God. And inside the ark, there was three things. There was the golden pot of manna, there was Aaron's rod that budded, and there was the Ten Commandments, the tablets of the covenant. The golden pot of manna was a representation of the gold of a king. Jesus is our bread king. He's the bread of life. Providing for the children of Israel to remember what he did for them for 40 years, he dropped manna from heaven. And he is the bread of life, and we eat of that bread, we'll have eternal life. There also was Aaron's rod that budded. Now why is that significant? Because it was a staff. If you, in those days, everybody had a staff, a walking stick, and they would go, walk around with it and use it. Aaron had a staff. And in Numbers 16 and 17, we saw a little controversy. We saw guys like Korah and 
Dathan and uh, Abiram and all their guys come up against Moses and Aaron and say, hey, you know what? You're kind of like acting like you're the big hoo-ha here. You're kind of running the whole show. Uh, God uses us, but you kind of got this place on lockdown. And it kind of looks a little like nepotism because, you know, you got you, you got your brother Aaron, you got your sister. And God, God can use us too. And they were challenging the calling of Moses that God called Moses. Moses didn't call himself. But they were challenging it. They were jealous. And so Moses was upset, and the Lord told him something to do. And so what Moses said, it said, tomorrow we'll meet here. You bring your people. We'll be here, and we'll see what the Lord does. And so they came, and Moses said, listen, here's the deal. He told the congregation, because everybody was involved, and he said, if, you know, the Lord says, if you're not of these guys, step back now. And so they stepped back and left all these guys and their families who were coming up against Moses. And Moses, the Lord put on his heart and he said this. He goes, listen, if you all die of natural causes, then I wasn't called. If you all die like the natural fate of a man, I'm not called. But if God does a new thing, and opens up the earth right now and swallows you up, all you, your families, your tents, everything, then that means I'm called. And no sooner did he finish saying that, that the earth opened up, they all fell into the pit screaming, and then fire just blows up out of the pit, and earth just closes up again. Everybody, pandemonium. The congregation's running. They're all, it's crazy. And then God told Moses to do something else. He said, listen, you get all the princes of all the tribes, you grab their sticks, their staffs, and we'll lay them in the tabernacle and we'll see who God chose. And so he called for all the princes to bring their staffs. They put their staffs, they took Aaron's staff, they put it in the tabernacle. And the next day, only Aaron's rod budded and blossomed with almond flowers and produced almonds. And that was what was put into the ark of the covenant that budded rod speaks of resurrection and in john eleven twenty five, 25 jesus said i am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me though he may die he shall live we also see inside the ark of the covenant the ta- the tablets of the covenant the ten commandments but separating the, all these three items from the, the person outside, from the high priest, was a closed lid with a mercy seat on top and the cherubim looking over. And the mercy seat is a representation of Jesus. The mercy seat is that we have Jesus between us and the law. Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. He took our place. Hallelujah. It, you don't want to face the law without Jesus in between you and the law. You want that mercy seat in front of you. You don't want to open that ark because what happened when people opened the ark or touched it? They died. If you want to approach God by the law, you will die. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's perfect. It's awesome. It's holy. But you're not. And you can't keep the law. And so Paul is writing to these guys, and I always say that, so just bear with me. I think Paul wrote Hebrews. Paul is begging these guys, why would you want to go back under the law which you can't keep? Why would you turn away from Jesus, the great high priest, 
the new covenant where he says, live to obey, not obey and live. We see this mercy seat representing Christ when we stand before the Father, he's going to see the blood over our doorpost and know that we're one of his. Hallelujah. Amen. Verse 6. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins, committed in ignorance, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that this was the way into the holiest of all, was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and carnal ordinances imposed until the time of the Reformation. So what we see here is the description of the priestly duties. And the priestly duties was daily in the holy place. Now, here's the thing. The holy of holies, the normal priest could not enter into the holy holies. They could only go into the holy place and do their duties, you know, trim the wicks, put the oil in, the incense and the prayers. You remember when we talked on Christmas about Zacharias, the son, the, the, I mean, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, his duty was in the temple burning incense. And these, these priests would have these duties one month out of a year. That's all they worked. That, that sounds pretty good. And so they would do these daily duties in the holy place, not the holy of holies. The high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, it happens in October, would go into the holiest of holies on behalf of all the people. So some three million people. And he had to follow requirements. And you can, you can do an in-depth study on that in Leviticus chapter 16 if you want to. So what he would do is he would have to prepare himself to ready himself because if he didn't do everything right according to the law, God would strike him dead. No pressure, right? So what he would do is he would cleanse himself. He would put on the proper linens. He would get himself all ready. He would sacrifice a bull, a calf, and, and that would be for his sins and the sins of the people. And then he would take that bowl of blood and he would enter into the Holy of Holies and, and he would dip his finger and sprinkle it seven times. Then he would go back out, wash, get cleaned up, put on new linens, and then they would bring in two goats without spot or blemish. That's how you had to bring your sacrifices. And the two goats were used to, they would cast lots, and one of the goats, the lot would land on him. He would be the one that would be sacrificed. That would be the Lord's goat. And then the second one would be the scapegoat, which is where we get that term. And so what they would do is the, the goat that got the lot that was the Lord's, they would sacrifice that goat, and then he would take the blood of that goat, and he would go in and he would sprinkle the mercy seat again 
with that and then come back out and that what they would do is they would lay their hands on these goats to transfer the sins of the people upon the goats. And one would be sacrificed, his blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat, and then the other one they would lead outside and they would let him loose in the wilderness to run away. And the idea was that by the sacrifice of one goat, their sins were covered, and by letting go the other goat, they were separated from their sins. And the great thing that Jesus did was he was the final sacrifice once and for all. He takes away our sin once and for all and casts it as far as the east is from the west. He is that final sacrifice. Amazing. And so what the writer here is telling them is it's time for all these ceremonies and all these rituals to end. Jesus is a greater high priest. Jesus has a better, more superior covenant. And Jesus is the one who gave the model for the temple, the model for the tabernacle. How much better is the real one not made with hands in heaven than the model? Which one do you want to be at? I don't know, I get excited about this stuff. Leviticus 16 was the instructions for the high priest to prepare himself before he met the Lord. You know what's crazy about that? If he didn't do everything just right, if he didn't prepare just right, God would drop him dead right in the Holy of Holies. How's that? How's that? The, the historic writings say they would tie a, a rope around their ankle. And when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and start doing things, if they didn't hear anything, or they heard a big thump, they're like, oh gosh, he's done. Nobody's going to go in there and get him. You don't dare do that. You're going to drop dead too. So they pull him out with a rope, announce a new high priest, wrap the rope around him, and get in there, boy. So it was like, there, you, you weren't like excited in a sense when you went in there you were hoping everything was going down properly so you made it out alive. The priest had to prepare themselves. And I, I want to ask you today, how are you preparing yourself before approaching God? What did you do this morning before you came here? Did you wake up, grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible? Start talking to God, read the word, maybe put on some worship music, get yourself all just like, you know, ready. Or maybe you didn't. Maybe you, uh, you got up, you flipped on the news, drank some coffee, started yelling at the TV, you know, got in a fight with your spouse at home, started yelling at the kids, came to, came to church screaming in the car, stepped out of the car, walked through the front door here and said, hey, praise the Lord, hallelujah, brother. Because that happens, doesn't it? I'm, I'm just thankful you're here. But I want to ask you, what did you do to prepare for this? You know why we do worship before church starts, before the message? It's because it's like, it's like doing the stretch before the big game. you got to get yourself in the right place to receive the Word of God. And when I hear people you know, walk out and say, you know what, I didn't really get anything from the message. You know what I think to myself? Wow, you probably didn't prepare yourself for the message. Because if you're not preparing yourself through prayer and through the word and the worship, you're not going to receive everything that God has for you today.
Do we understand the privilege that we have that the Old Testament saint did not have? I mean, it's crazy when you stop to think about it. The Old Testament saint couldn't get past the courtyard. The priest couldn't get into the Holy of Holies. Only one guy could get into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. And even with all of that, the holiest priest on the holiest day in the holiest place and all that he performed couldn't make you perfect or complete. There was no power to change you or to transform you. Why would you go back to that? When Jesus has the power to change you and transform you. Matthew 11, 11, check this out. I know I've said this verse before. I'm going to say it again. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of a woman, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What a statement. None born of a woman are greater than John the Baptist. The law and the prophets were until John. I think it's Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John. John closed the Old Testament. John was the greatest prophet of all. Now check this out. John didn't do any miracles. For all those people that just have these ministries, it's all focused on miracles. You know, I, I love miracles, but you've got to focus on teaching the Word. Not pepping up the crowd. John never spoke in tongues. I believe in tongues, but so many people are just so overtaken by, you know, tongues. It's like, yeah, but that's, that's a gift that God gives you between him and you, not, not with the congregation. John the Baptist didn't speak in tongues. He didn't do miracles. What made him such a great prophet, greater than all the rest? He taught the word of God. That's when lives change. When you get your people and your congregation through the Word of God, that's going to change your life. Because the power's in the Word. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It can get right in there where I can't get and cut you up and do some surgery and change you. And it's a double-edged sword, so when it goes out, you're like, well, the pastor's really hacking me today. Well, remember, it's coming back and just doosh, doosh, doosh. Because sometimes I'm up here and I think it's just for me. Because I look out and I go, man, they, everybody's looking at me like the deer in the headlights. I don't think anybody's getting this. Like, it must be for me. And you know, what's, you know what's awesome about the Word of God? It never stops revealing itself to you. You take a verse you thought you knew up, down, sideways, backwards, forwards, in and out, in between the spaces between the letters, and God just all of a sudden goes, boom! And you go, wow! I never saw that! That's the power of the Word. Sometimes I wonder to myself how much of the Bible we really understand. Maybe 10, 15%. We'll see. The Levitical priesthood could never do what Jesus Christ did for us. Look at verse 11. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. Praise the Lord. That is not of this creation, not of this earth. Not with blood of goats and calves, but his own blood. He entered the most holy place once and for all, 
having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifers sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit has offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Wow! That, that, that was amazing right there. Look at, look at verse 14. This is for all those that say there's no such thing as a trinity. Here's just another verse that, that shuts that down. How much more shall the blood of Christ, so there's Jesus Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, there's the Holy Spirit, offer himself without spot to the Father. Hello. <laughs> so he's telling man, why would you want to go back to something that can't get the job done and ignore Jesus Christ, who can get the job done. Now notice that Jesus Christ was offered up without spot. And you hear that a lot. When you bring your sacrifice, no spot, no blemish, right? That was the, that was the key. What's a spot? A spot is something you're born with. A blemish is something you acquired. So you might be born with a spot, a defect on your skin or whatever it is, and then through life, you know, you get stitches, things like that. You've got a blemish, okay? So we all have a spot. Why? Because Adam and Eve sinned. They fell in the garden. Because of their sin, we were all born into sin. We were born with a spot. Now some of you, because of life, have acquired some blemishes on top of that spot. So when you brought an animal to the Lord... It had to be without spot and blemish. Why would God say that to us? Because he knows us. If, if, if someone said, hey, you got to offer a lamb to the Lord, we would go, uh, oh, man, uh, okay, grab that little one-eyed, snaggle-toothed, three-legged one right there. We'll, that's the Lord's. He knows you. It's like the old story of the farmer. And his, and his lamb had uh, two identical twin lambs. And he and his wife were so excited. And he goes, one's for us and one's for the Lord. She goes, which one's the Lord? He goes, no different. It doesn't matter. And then one day he came in all perplexed. She's like, what's wrong? He goes, ah, the Lord's lamb died. We tend to give God not our best. In service, in giving, when He gave us His best. You know, I came to church Wednesday night and I pulled up in the parking lot and I saw these three cases of canned goods in front of the church and I thought, oh, praise the Lord, somebody donated to our, our food bank so we can help others. And as I got closer to the door, I saw all the cans were all like rusted and out of date and it was all the stuff that nobody likes to eat. And I was like, oh, I had to throw them all away. I remember a lady once said she wanted to donate a car to the church, and I said, well, praise the Lord. And she goes, yeah, it just needs a little bit of work. And, and it turned out that it needed to be towed, and there was thousands of dollars worth of repairs that needed to happen, and she just didn't want to take it to the dump, the junkyard. And sometimes I don't think we really understand the depths of what God has done for us because we don't express it in our service to God or in our giving to God. We give God out of our scraps. 
We give God the food that we don't want. If you really want to have a heart for the poor, don't drop off rusty cans. Bring a prime rib. Some ahi, some pokey or something, you know what I mean? If you really want to impress the Lord, drop off a brand new van for kids' ministry. I'm not pumping you with ideas. I'm just, this stuff's just coming right now. <laughs> give your best. When David was told by the Lord to go purchase Mount Moriah where the temple would be built, what had happened was the owner and his sons had witnessed this great huge angel that scared the daylights out of them. So when David approached him and said, I want to buy the land, the guy just goes, hey, just take it. It's yours. And whatever you need, I'll give you. I'll give you the vessels. It's, don't worry about it. No charge. And David goes, I will not give anything to the Lord that didn't cost me something. So in your giving, what does it cost you when you give to the Lord? I know Christians that tip their waitresses better than they tip God. I'm just saying he gave us his best. Let's give him something that costs something. You're, you're, you know, I'll tell you what, people would rather put money in the offering than to serve. I understand it, because why? Time is money. And it takes time out of your busy day to say, you know what, Lord, you're worth it. And I hope today that somehow through this message, through the Word of God, that we would grab into our hearts that to that, that, that take the time out to serve God and to give to God is totally worth it. This eternal redemption through which the blessing of the new covenant has reached all the believers should affect the way believers serve and give to God. The old covenant rituals served for ceremonial unclean and, and only made them outwardly clean. But the blood of Jesus Christ does so much more. It cleanses us not only outwardly, but inwardly. His sacrifice that Jesus had on the cross was of infinite value because through the eternal spirit, he offered himself unblemished to the Father. How much more should the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit has offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. You know what? We'll stop there. I hope uh, I hope that if you got anything out of this, that maybe you'd think twice on how you prepare yourself before you come to church. So important. Because I know in your heart you're saying, I want more Jesus. And so if you prepare yourself before you get here, you're going to get more. I guarantee it. And he is worth our praise and worship. Worship is not just songs. 
It's a way of life. Everything we do, everything we say, everything we give, everything we serve should reflect the glory of God. That when men see your good works, they glorify the Father in heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking to us today, Lord God, through your word. It's so powerful. I just love your word, Lord God. Thank you for taking us on the tour to show us that all these things were just a shadow of something greater that was coming, and it was you. And so, Lord, would you help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of you? Would you help us to surrender ourselves? Lord, help us to prepare ourselves before we serve you and worship you. Lord, give us a hunger for your word and a desire to serve and to just love on people, Lord God. And Lord, help us to forgive others that have wronged us. Help us to be a reflection of you. Lord, we just thank you for your patience with us. And we give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.